Good morning, ladies. Don't get scared. I'm just here to say a few words of introduction. We have Rabbi Mansur. Just, uh, I want to say that Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, our community is going ma'ala ma'ala from one level to another level in spirituality. And it's not taking away from our physical pleasure. It's best when you have the good of both worlds. And that's really what's happening. The community, <coughs> Torah classes, is spreading all over. Every shul is opening it, Torah centers. Every shul is now has a competition who has a more beautiful mikveh. And now it came time for the next most important mitzvah, which makes us different than all other nations, the mitzvah of kashrut, of eating kosher. There was a very big void for many years in this community, in this area, kosher restaurants, education of what's kosher and what's not kosher, making kosher food more accessible, etc., etc., etc. My dear friend, Rabbi Chaim Marking, who's actually, actually uh, third cousins, he came to fill in this void. And Baruch Hashem, he has been working so hard that we should have more kashrut in this town, more kosher restaurants, more kosher food accessible. But not only that, education. You all know the WhatsApps, you know the questions, you know the answers. Rabbi Alking, I'm talking about you, you're running away. <laughs> and you all know that he's just all day, all he's thinking about is how we're going to make kashrut more available and how the people should appreciate it and understand it and understand how important it is. And that's why he started now with the classes and he's bringing in rabbis like Rabbi Mansur. I uh, have a friend of mine, an Ashkenaz friend, I saw in the Ami magazine an article about Rabbi Mansur. I said, what are you talking about? Mansur is the greatest, spe greatest speaker, not only in our community, in the Jewish world. That's Rabbi Mansur. We're so lucky to have him here in our neighborhood to teach Torah. Where my man who teaches Torah, he makes it sweet, sweeter than honey. That's the gift that God gave him. And so we're very fortunate to have a rabbi like Rabbi Mansur come to teach Torah, to teach the, the importance of the topic of kashrut. And Bezrat Hashem, our community will go higher and higher in every level of a religion, and especially kashrut. We must thank a few people here, just real quick. Of course, Esther Tabeli for opening up her house. And of course, Kim Cohen for organizing all of this. And... And as I said, Rabbi Aking and the whole JSOR team. And we want to thank everybody for coming. Even in this weather, you get extra points for coming in this weather. And may Hashem help us appreciate the mitzvah of kashrut. May Hashem help us understand that by keeping kashrut, it makes us different people. And the rest you'll hear from the very special Rabbi Mansa. Thank you. Bereshut, uh, Rabbi Dweck, Rabbi Arking, and I guess uh, all the good members from the JSOR, and all the volunteers, the ladies, the hostess that uh, sponsored this morning's get-together. I'm very impressed that, uh, that you've taken this initiative. I think it's very, very crucial to be honest with you, it's probably a bit late, but nonetheless, in America we say better late than never. And to your credit, that you've taken this, uh, this objective, 
You're taking it very seriously, as I understand. And uh, I'm very happy that you're approaching it through education. That's the only way you can make change in the long run in our community is through education. I've said it many times. Even when it comes to other topics like modesty and things like that, you can't just go say, you know, put on a dress and cover your hair. It doesn't work. It takes years of education and teaching and explaining it. <clears throat> then over the course of time, it seeps in, and Baruch Hashem was starting to see results, and Kashrut is no different. It was a great idea to make this series. I think it's a monthly series where you invite, you know, one rabbi every month. You have so many rabbis in deal. I don't know how I made the short list of rabbis to address you. I'm very, <clears throat> very flattered by that. I know it's not because you don't have a, a shortage of rabbis, but I guess you knew that I was in deal anyway, so you said we'll kill two birds with one stone. And uh, he's here anyway, he's doing nothing, so might as well bring him and let him, uh, let him tell us something about Kashrut. So I appreciate the invitation. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not in the Kashrut industry, so I'm, I, don't, I don't profess to be an expert on, on Kashrut, but I'm Jewish, so I keep kosher. And I'm proud to say that I have a kosher kitchen, so I know a little about the laws. And to be a rabbi, you have to study thoroughly the laws of Kashrut. So although I'm not a mashkiah, but I was tested on the laws uh, in order to become a rabbi, you have to know the laws. Whether you're going to pursue a life of kashrut in the industry or not, that's up to you, but you need to be tested. So in that sense, I'm a little qualified to talk about the topic. I'm glad that they didn't ask me to speak about the halachic side of it. I'll leave that to the great rabbis to discuss the technical side of kashrut, which is the real side of the kashrut. But I was asked to speak this morning about the hashkafic side of it, about the philosophy of it, about uh, why it's important, why is it so necessary to keep kashrut and to have uh, kosher kitchens and kosher kosher restaurants, etc. <clears throat> Please do not be uh, shocked from where I will begin today's class. It's a very, uh, it's not an ordinary place to start a class on Kashrut. <clears throat> the Gemara asks in Hulin, Haman minayin. Where is Haman mentioned in the Torah? Now, I know it's not Purim, but the Gemara wants to know where is Haman's name mentioned in the Torah? Now I found that question quite odd because Haman's name is not mentioned in the Torah. Haman from Megillat Esther came much after the Torah, uh, thousands of years. I mean, we find his name in Megillat Esther, and to be honest with you, his name is mentioned more than enough times there. But the Gemara is asking a question, and we want to find him in the Torah. So the Gemara then comes along and says, we found him. If you remember when Adam Arishon, Adam and Eve, after they ate from the tree. So God tells Adam Arishon, Hamin ha'etz, did you eat from the tree? So the governor says, Hamin. Ah, Hamin is the same letter as Haman. We found him. We found him. He's hiding in the tree of Adam Arishon. And that's the Gemara. Now I think it's, it's quite clever that the Gemara was able to find the same letters, Haman, Hamin. But I cannot accept what do you need 
to find a hint, Haman, Hamin, his name is written in Megillat Esther. <coughs> what, was the, what was it necessary for this Gemara to search for an illusion of Haman in the Torah? Unless we're not understanding the Gemara's question correctly. So please allow me to say a novel interpretation, the way I understand this Gemara. And it'll be an introduction to what we came to talk about this morning. If you remember in the Megillat Esther, the Jewish people were held liable. There was a decree against all of the Jewish people. When I say all Jewish people, I mean men, women, and children. It was going to be a holocaust like the world never saw. Hitler, Yemach Shemot, took about four or five years to kill one-third of European Jewry. Haman wanted to do it in one day. Imagine that, you'd wake up the next morning and there'd be no Jews left in the world. And he had it planned out. He had all his SS officers all over the countries, and his plan was to kill everybody. And the Gemara says, well, what sin? What sin did the Jewish people do to deserve such a decree? And the Gemara says, oh, because early on, they ate by the Se'udah B'Hashverosh. They went to the party of B'Hashverosh. And as far as I know, he didn't have a mashkiah, the JSOA didn't have, uh, didn't have that job. And they ate whatever they were served. And they ate things that were not kosher. And they drank wine that was not kosher. And because of that, the Gemara says, Al shel And I know you know that already. But I think the Gemara is asking the following question. Yes, indeed. Kashrut is very important. But where do you see that if you don't keep the laws of Kashrut, there's a death penalty? I know the Torah says there's a death penalty if you don't keep the Shabbat. There's a death penalty if you eat hametz on Pesach. There's a death penalty if you don't keep the laws of family purity. But not every law in the Torah has a consequence of death. So the Gemara is asking, Haman min ha-Torah minayin. Where do we see that because they ate non-kosher food, that Haman was able to kill them? Where do you see a gezerah of death when it comes to eating non-kosher? The gezerah of Haman minayin. That's the Gemara's question. The gezerah, the decree of Haman from the Torah, where do we find it? You know what the Gemara answers? <laughs> the Gemara says, nobody lives forever. There's a cap on life. In our generation, nobody can live more than 120 years. Even the greatest Sadiq, Moshe Rabbeinu, lived a full life, 120. Even Rabbi Akiva, he lived a full life, 120. Where did that death sentence emanate from? What sin was committed that brought death to the entire world for over 5,700 years? Was it that somebody desecrated Shabbat? No. Was it somebody that didn't go to the mikveh? No. Was it somebody that didn't pray with a minyan? No. What was the sin, ladies? They ate something that was forbidden. Adam and Eve ate a fruit that wasn't kosher for them. And therefore the Gemara says, 
You know where the Gezerah Haman is in the Torah? On page one, Hamin Ha'etz. Just like you see that as a result of Adam and Eve eating from the tree, they brought a death sentence to the world that we're still paying for. So therefore, there is a well, well-documented source for the Gezerah of Haman. That should shake us all into the importance of how Kashrut, we were in this mess today because they weren't careful on Kashrut. If Adam and Eve would have thought twice, maybe this fruit isn't kosher. And it's not like it was the only uh, a tree in the garden, there was other options, but they chose to eat from the tree that didn't have a hashkaha on it. They ate from the tree that wasn't kosher, that didn't have a, a, a stamp on it of approval. And you say, okay, so they ate, big deal, so they ate. So they ate. Look what happened as a result of it. So the first sin, the primordial sin in Jewish, in the world history, was a, 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 a lapse in the laws of Kashrut. And therefore the Gemara says, yes, every time, God forbid, there's going to be a lapse in Kashrut, there's going to be consequence. So you should be very happy again. Because if, if, if that's the case, the opposite is also true. That any time people get together to strengthen Kashrut, so that brings long life. It's the opposite. It brings beracha. It brings prosperity. Uh, this community is in for very good days ahead of it, I have no doubt. There's going to be a tremendous, tremendous influx of blessing. Because again, it works against each other. Where there's no kashrut, there was a great rabbi called Hatam Sofer. Maybe you heard of him. He brings down in his sefer, and I made a copy of it. I like to quote it. He found the Midrash. It's in Tanhuman Shemini. It says that uh, God Almighty from time to time would come to Adam Harishon. Adam Harishon is buried in the Marat HaMachpela. So he would come to him and he would say, Mi yigale afar Adam Harishon. Adam if you'd only be alive to see your children today. You only were forbidden to eat one item. Your kashrut list had a very short, uh, one item. That was the only thing that wasn't kosher to Adam. And what? You weren't able to be careful. But go look at your children. Go look at the Jewish people. They make shechita. And then they have to check the animal. And if they find even a small uh, piece of sinew or mucus on the lung of the animal, they throw it away. They plant trees. And they don't eat from the fruit of the trees for the first three years, like the Torah says. The trees in Eretz Israel, the, the first three years, you're not allowed to eat from its fruits. And the fourth year, you have to treat it in a certain way. So God says to Adam Rishon, you couldn't do it. Even on one product. And look at your children. They're being careful across the board on hundreds of laws of kashrut. And says the Atam Sofer, that's what protects us. Because we're not like Adam Arishon. But then he says, once they went to the Se'udava Hashverosh and they ate, so now God says, you're just like Adam. You eat whatever you want. Now they lost their protection. And once they lost their protection, that aroused one of the most uh, serious 
than the most tragic decrees that our people ever faced. So you're in the right direction. It couldn't come at a better time after this magifa that we just uh, finished with, I hope we finished with, this pandemic as they call it. This is a great, great moment to start a new page in our health, in our beracha. So the Hatab Sofer writes, I'll teach you a Hebrew word. I learned this from my rabbi, Hakam Baruch, Shalom. He was a shohet in South Africa before he came to America. He was in South Africa. A rabbi then, then he came to us. And he would be in charge of slaughtering the animals and he would have to check the knives. The knife of shahita has to be very smooth. So the rabbi runs his nail up and down the knife so there's no nicks. They don't want it to hurt the animal when they're making the shahita. They want the shahita to be as smooth and as, uh, uh, as clean as possible. But if there's a nick in the knife, so then there's a, a, a bump and there's a ridge and it causes the animal to have a little pain. So the rabbi would tell us he would have to run his thumb up and down the knife. They do it in a certain way that they don't cut their thumb, obviously. And he goes up and down and until he's uh, uh, certain that the knife is certified. And the rabbi would tell us that if there's a nick in the knife, there's a way to kosher it. You have to take a stone and you have to go back and forth and make it, make it sharp again. But how do you say that nick in Hebrew? That nick on the knife is a special word. It's called the pigima. Okay, congratulations, you learned the word of the day. Pigima is the nick on the knife. So the Hatam Sufir said, it's such a finity in the laws of Kashrut, because you really have to be very sensitive to feel every nick. And if anybody ever went to a slaughterhouse as I did, you see the rabbis agonize over it, making sure the knife is 100% kosher. Forget about the meat. We didn't get to the meat yet. We didn't, we we're discussing the knife. That's uh, 10 steps before we get to the, to the butcher. They're running there. And if, it's, if, if there's a pigima, they have to put the knife away. But it says Hatam Sofer. You have some unscrupulous butchers that they want to make money. And therefore, they're not so careful. And if there's a little nick, they say, well, it's going to slow me down now. Now I have to take the rock and I have to sharpen it. Eh, it's only a small nick. It's not visible to the eye anyway. And they go and slaughter. There's a pigima. Says the Hatam Sofer. Those that eat from that meat, well, the meat is not kosher. If the animal was slaughtered by a not kosher knife, the animal is not kosher. And what's the consequence? He says, well, if you take the word pigima and you boggle the letters and switch them around, pigima also spells the same exact word as magefa. Oh. That's the right reaction. That was my reaction as well when I heard that. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to control yourself. It's, that's fine. <laughs> so you see, magefa is the pandemic. Magefa is a plague. Ladies, by no means I didn't come to scare you this, this, this morning. And, and if I did, well, I have a job in Brooklyn, so I'm not, I'm not, this is not an interview. You're not interviewing me today. And if I fail the interview, so be it. I'll go back to Brooklyn and uh, I'll be happy. Okay, no, I'm not. Okay, that's why, that's why I was here yesterday. But my point is, I don't come to scare you. Oh, look at the rabbi. You brought this rabbi here. He's good, scaring us about all these things over here. Let him talk positive. I'll, I'll be positive in a minute. 
you get scared already? You need to be, you need to be shaken a little. That's the, that's the way my rabbis uh, taught it to me as well. I mean, there's two sides of the kashrut element, but we cannot just uh, talk roses and, you know, uh, cheery and all these things, and we deny the, deny the reality. You have to know how important it is. I have a paper over here, which I think is a treasure as well. If you remember in the parashiyot that we're reading now, we read about Abraham Abinu, who was a monotheist, believed in one God. Now I know we take that for granted, all of us believe in one God, but he lived at a time when nobody believed in one God. He was on one side of the, of the belief system and everybody else was against him. And slowly, slowly, Abraham, in a very methodical way, and I'm a teacher the way he did it, he would bring the people to believe in God. And the Torah tells us his method. What did he do? <coughs> so it says, He planted a tree in the city called Be'er Sheva. And then after it says he planted the tree, And there is where he called out in the name of God. And that's where the people would come, and that's where he would convince them, and that's where he would convert them. I always wanted to know, what is an eshel, a tree? What does a tree have to do with conversion? It should say he built the yeshiva. Maybe eshel is the yeshiva. If that's what eshel means, then I understand it. But eshel in its, uh, in its raw sense means a tree. A pardes, an orchard of trees, actually. How do you bring people back to religion by building or planting trees? How does that cause anybody to be a monotheist, a believer in one God? I saw an incredible explanation based on what Maimonides writes. This doesn't apply to us so much, but in Israel it does, as we mentioned just now, that when you plant a tree, you're not allowed to eat the first three years of the fruits is forbidden. Could you imagine what a test that is? A farmer finally has product coming out of his tree. Three years is a long time, and you tell him you cannot benefit it's like eating hazir. It's like eating pig if you eat those, those fruits. It's not kosher. You're not allowed to eat those fruits. Which, by the way, in parentheses, what I'm telling you. So you see, kosher and not kosher is not always ingredients. What could be in an apple? An apple has no ingredients? No, but since that apple is within the first three years, so therefore, that's a very juvenile way of looking at kashrut. Oh, the ingredients. Ingredients is nothing. This is kosher 100%. Like wine. What could be in wine? But we know that wine that the goyim touch. Is forbidden, even though it could be in wine. It's just made out of one ingredient, uh, crushed grapes. Anyway, so Avram would plant these trees. Maimonides says, why did the Torah say that the first three years are forbidden? Why are you not allowed to eat the What's the reason for the law? Now, really, we're not supposed to give reasons. We're supposed to accept it. But Rambam gives a reason. And he writes, he says, because in the olden days, the people that worshipped idolatry... They knew magic as well. And when they would plant trees, they would want the fruits to produce quicker than normal so they could have a product. So they would say all types of magic on the tree and heebie-jeebie and different type of, uh, you know, Abu uh, names and things like that. So the tree will produce more fruit. It was, it was very, very common, he says. So therefore the Torah wants us to be far away from Abu So you know what the Torah says? 
Forget about using names of Avodah Zarah. Even if you use it, you won't be able to eat the fruit for three years anyway. So there's no rush. You can't, you can't benefit. And he says, by not eating something for three years, it teaches you discipline. It teaches you a lot of discipline. And discipline is the name of the game. So therefore, when these people would come to Abraham, he would feed them, he would give them beautiful meals, and then they would, he would say, come, let's take a walk in my uh, pardes, in my eshel, in my garden. And they would see these most magnificent trees. They would say, wow, is this where we're going to have dessert? These are beautiful fruits over here. And Abraham would say, no, we're not allowed to have these trees over here. We have to, you mean you don't eat from these beautiful fruits? No, I do not eat from these fruits over here. And from there, Avram would start to teach them because we don't do Avodah Zarah like you people used to do. You talk to your trees to make the fruits go quick. We have discipline, we don't eat it. And from there, he started the conversation. And he taught them that once you join this version of belief in God, you're going to have to control your urges. Which, by the way, it was very convincing. And that should be very convincing to all of you. The fact that your children have discipline, that you can't just put anything in your mouth. Today, the biggest thing that we have in our society is people have no self-control of anything. That's why drugs are rampant. Something that's desirable, something that's pleasurable, something that bring them a little enjoyment right away. But hopefully religious people, and even though I know drugs is, 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 uh, is non-discriminatory, but those that follow the laws of Kashrut, at least they're training themselves I was once in a supermarket. <clears throat> I was with my kids. And uh, I, I guess it was a non-Jewish lady came up to me and said, uh, it, it's incredible. It's incredible. I never saw such a thing like this. To your credit. <laughs> to my credit, I accept. What are you talking about? She says, I just noticed an interaction that you had with your children. And she said, this interaction will never, it's impossible for this interaction to happen with my children. That's what would happen. What did you see? I wasn't, it may, must have made a bigger impression on you than it made on me because I don't even remember what you're talking about. She said, you were walking down the aisle and the kid grabbed a bag of candy and started to tell you, Daddy, I want this candy. And you looked at him very, very softly. You said, it's not kosher. And you dropped it like it was poison and he kept on. Said, How does that happen? By me? What do you mean? The, the first, we don't, we don't have that kosher. That would be a fight from here to tomorrow. <clears throat> How important is that, that our children know from early on that not everything you pick up, you can put in your mouth. Now, it'll help them in kashrut for sure, but it's going to help them in a hundred other ways as well. There's a certain pause. Uh, there's a way you could tell if somebody's Jewish or not. Now, there's the obvious ways you could tell. If he has a kippah, you know, if he has a seed hanging out. But today, people like to cover their Jewishness because nobody wants to be, uh, you, know, uh, you know, apparently Jewish for whatever reason, anti-Semitism. So everybody likes to cover it up a little and to, be, to look like everybody else. But there's one way you could always tell. The next time you're on a plane and the stewardess gives out uh, the potato chips, the one that goes like this. <laughs> what are they looking? It's a big. Oh, they must be Jewish. They're looking. They're looking for the. They're looking for the OU. He has no yarmulke on, no sissin out. He has a baseball out, everything. But once he starts flipping over the potato chips, he doesn't want to know how much uh, cholesterol is in the potato chips. <laughs> he wants to know. Am I lying? And, and to, to the credit of the people, 
And if they don't see a, a mark, they put it down. And the stewardess one told me, I was on a flight going to the West Coast. The stewardess came to me and said, uh, okay, here's the menu, sir. I said, no, no, I don't eat from this menu. I ordered kosher food. And she came back and said, oh, forgive me, but we didn't order you a meal. I said, it's no problem. I don't know. It's fine. I have something or some nuts and stuff like that. And she said, it's a six-hour flight. You're not going to eat anything on this. I said, well, you know what? We have, we have dietary laws. I'm not. She says, nothing. Can I get you this? No, that has that. Can I eat? Give you a bring that? The Goya was so impressed. By what? By discipline. Because in a society that's so carefree, in a society that's so careless and reckless, and people just do whatever they want, and there's still a group of people that think before they talk, think before they eat, think before they look. This is already a tremendous, tremendous exercise that would have, and that was what Abraham was doing. Abraham said, this is an exercise in discipline. You see these beautiful trees? Off limits. And he was probably making a tikkun as well for Adam Rishon. That's the way the Kabbalists say, that he planted those trees specifically not to eat from them in order to rectify the sin of Adam Rishon. Well, if that's the case, <clears throat> let's go further. The Torah, when it talks about eating kosher, tells us the effects that it has. Now, you would think it has an effect on your weight, which everybody's always concerned about. Well, the Torah doesn't talk about that. That's personal. But the Torah says, V'nitmetem bam. V'nitmetem. What does that word v'nitmetem mean? And you will be defiled. You will become impure. V'nitmetem. Now, I don't want to make this too technical, but the word v'nitmetem, the way it's spelled in the Torah, in that parashah, is written without an aleph. Normally, tameh is spelled tet mem aleph. Tameh, impure. There it's spelled v'nitmetem. It's missing a letter, and therefore the Gemara says, wait, what's this missing letter? So therefore we're allowed to read it differently. Don't read it v'nitmetem, but read it v'nitamtem. What does v'nitamtem mean? By eating not kosher, it creates an obstruction. A blockage. Not God forbid in the arteries. It's not a health issue, meaning a physical health issue. <clears throat> you must know, ladies, that all of us have neshamot. All of us have souls. And in order for the soul to work properly, it needs a connection with the upper worlds, that the light from God shines into it. And that brings us our spiritual sensitivities. The Torah tells us when we eat things that are not kosher, it dulls that sensitivity. Spiritual sensitivity becomes blunted. There's an obstruction. Do you want to know why? Do you want to know why there's many youngsters in our communities that are walking around denying God, believing in evolution, believing in all these things that are against our tradition. I always said, well, because after they graduate yeshiva, they go to college, and it takes a professor two or three classes to undo 12 years of Jewish education. They're very convincing. They have books, they have science, they have you know, a lot of letters after their name, they have credentials. But you know where the real reason 
why a lot of our youth are losing the sensitivity to emunah, to faith in God, to belief in God, to Shabbat, to Kashrut, to things that were so important to my grandfather and great-grandfather and your great-grandparents, things that were so important to our tradition for 3,000 years, and today the children treat it so lightly and so casual and so nonchalant and so cheap. You know what it is? Because the fact that there's so much non-kosher food and products that are being consumed into their system, their spiritual soul has been blunted it has been dulled. And therefore they don't have the sensitivity to anything of Kodesh anymore. You see, not kosher food, even if the FDA says this is 100% organic and it's healthy and gluten-free, all the ma'alot, kama ma'alot. But after all that's said and done, if it's not kosher, it might not have a bad effect on your physical body. Somebody might eat not kosher and say, you know something, I never felt as good as I felt before. You know, I feel strong, I feel healthy. They go to the doctor, the doctor says, unbelievable. I don't know what you're eating, but your heart is working at perfect pace and your blood is flowing, correct? I'm not talking about that. Health-wise, maybe, maybe it brings a person to healthy. But let them take a certain instrument and start measuring the soul of that person. And they'll find that it's anemic, They'll find that it's scurvy. They'll find that it's malnutrition. And they'll find that there's no reception. That the reception has been blocked as an obstruction, as I said. That's what vinit metimbam. And that's why I said I think we're a little late in the game. If you were to ask me, when we're building a community, what's the first thing we have to accept upon ourselves as a community? I would say kashrut. I'll tell you the simple reason why. Because we're going to say, no, 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 not kosher. Let's build the yeshiva. What's the yeshiva going to help? If the kids are eating not kosher, it's not going to enter their hearts. They're not going to get it. If their souls are not going to be open to receive Torah, and that only happens when there's kosher food, so what's the difference? We get the best teachers, we could get the best sifarim, and we get the best educators, but if you're talking to a wall, it's not going to penetrate. So yes, indeed. Kosher food and religion, religious behavior go together. A thousand years ago, there was a rabbi called Harambam, Maimonides. They wrote him a letter from one of the countries that would always correspond with Maimonides because he was the greatest rabbi of his time, of all time. And they write him a letter and they say, in the community they're having... Uh, issues with uh, many of its members are questioning is there is there resurrection they're questioning this, this one of the 13 principles where we believe that God will resurrect the dead and they write to the mom could you give us proofs or sources that we can share with our members to show them that there is indeed there is resurrection Harambam is shocked. This was an old Jewish traditional community. And they're questioning one of the basic tenets of Jewish faith. You know what he writes back? He says, I am not sure if the problem in your community has to do with something intellectual. But I think 
it's because you've been consuming so much not kosher food for all these years, it is starting to have effect on your belief. Could you believe it? He diagnosed the problem, not as a problem in intellect, but in the problem in diet. He says, change your diet, and then maybe you'll start to become a little more warm towards the tradition. But as long as you're eating these foods, as long as you're eating these things that are, that are not kasher, today you'll start to deny Tichayat HaMetim, and tomorrow you'll start to deny Mashiach, the next day you'll start to deny that the Torah was given at Sinai. It's a slippery slope. And a lot of it begins in what we're eating. So amazing thing with Maimonides' answer. He didn't say, you know, check your school books. Maybe the curriculum is flawed. Is flawed. He said, no, check the butcher. You must be eating something that isn't kosher. Now, it shouldn't shock you. When we talk about Torah, Torah is a lifestyle. You have to remember that. It's a lifestyle. It's not just the law here and the law there. God wants us to live a certain lifestyle. Recently, I read an article that they talked about the danger of plastic. They said if you have a plastic bottle of water and you leave it in your car and it gets hot, so they said somehow that the the toxins in the plastic will go in the water, and God forbid there could be a negative effect on that. And everybody who's always drinking, you know, the water, what's, what's by the water? It's, no, but it's not the water, it's the plastic. Now, I don't know if that's confirmed or not, but I see some of you are nodding your heads so you know about this, this study. And immediately, I don't know who figured it out, some genius from Harvard or wherever he was, and everybody stopped with the plastic water. Everybody stopped leaving it in their car. And everybody's spreading it with their friends. Oh, we read it. You got to read it. They're emailing it. They're forwarding it. And everybody changed their lifestyle right away. Why? Because nobody could have believed before. What could be plastic? Plastic is so innocuous. Plastic is so innocent. But they found out it's not. And everybody changed on a dime. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't. But my point is, why do we give more credence to a professor from Harvard than God Almighty himself? God has told us in his Torah that these things are toxic for the Jewish soul. Ah, I'm not convinced. What, until it comes from the FDA, until the government tells you, then you'll believe it? You trust the government? I know nobody trusts the government more than God. And the whole world is dieting. Go to the bookstore, the biggest section in the bookstore is diet section. And everybody has a different diet. And everybody has a different derich. So when God presents his diet, they say, ah, this is old-fashioned. Give me, give me the new diet. This one. It's a diet. It's a lifestyle. And therefore, we have to trust that just like there's certain physical things that are toxic and we've accepted it, we have to accept as well that there's certain <coughs> foods that are toxic for the Jewish soul. I remember a distinct story that happened in Mag and David. That's the school that I graduated in 19, I guess, 81. It's a long time ago. Thank God Mag and David's still around. Thank God I'm still around as well. 
Baruch Hashem, yes, for both of us. And we were in the yeshiva, and we went down for lunch. It was 50 Avenue P, the old school, before they made it, you know, the new school. Chaim <coughs> Baruch was our rabbi in eighth grade. And we went down, and nobody was ever excited to have lunch anyway in the yeshiva. It wasn't the, you know, wasn't the best lunch, to be honest with you. And all of a sudden, Chaim Baruch walked into the kitchen, and I, we saw there was like a tumult. There was a, what happened? The chef decided to make one of his new concoctions that day. And he took uh, fish, the fish sticks that Magnum David was famous for, and in order to make them more or less edible than they already were, he poured uh, marinara sauce over them, and he covered them with melted cheese. Okay. It wasn't going to change the taste of them. They were, you know, whatever. I don't, nothing you could do to those fish sticks that was going to change... Uh, the result, but I guess he realized nobody was eating it. So he said, "Let me, let me play around. Let me tinker with it." Now, I'm not a rabbi. I'm not your posik. I'll ask your rabbi this question. I'm just telling you what Baruch held. He saw that there was fish and cheese mixed together, and the rabbi himself did not eat that combination. You'll ask your rabbis if you're allowed to eat that combination. He didn't. And I'll never forget, he told the chef, throw it all out. The kids will have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches today. Now first, we're grateful for Chabaruk for saving us from that, from that, you know, that lunch. <laughs> I'm grateful till today for the rabbi having it thrown out. But what I was amazed as I grew older and said, Rabbi, you're strict on this. You don't have fish and cheese. But the kids have to eat. But the rabbi knew if we're going to give our kids things that are compromised in kashrut. See, there is a case where it's kosher fish, kosher cheese. It's just a combination that makes it problematic. And he said, in my mind, what I'm thinking is, how can we feed our kids something that's going to compromise? They won't be able to learn Torah tomorrow morning correctly again. It's... It's, it's working against us. If we don't feed them on the highest standard of kashrut. And I had this fight. I had this fight. Even when I became the rabbi here in, 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 in Lawrence Avenue in the beginning. I had to try to explain to the board, as a shul, we have to have the highest level of kashrut. That even if the chief rabbi of Israel comes to our shul, he can eat with his eyes closed. No, but we can get the milk from over here and we'll save 32 cents over. So we built a $42 million building. You want to save 30 cents now on, 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 on milk? Now you woke up to save 30 cents on milk? You didn't save a dollar on anything else we did. Now when it came to the milk, you want to save 14 cents? And it takes time to convince them that at least the synagogue should be on the stand if Moshe Rabbeinu would come down from heaven he could eat with his eyes closed. And not that we have to tell Moshe, well, you shouldn't eat this because it's not that, and don't eat that because it's not that. It's a shul. If in God's house we cannot have the highest standards, then where are we going to have the highest standards? Now, another thing is what we do in our homes, but I'm, again, I'm talking from the, from the standpoint of the shuls. We're all old enough to remember some of us are old enough to remember <clears throat> what was considered religious in the olden days when we were growing up. 
Today, we know what religious is today. Today, we have an understanding of what religious is. You have to behave in a certain way. When we were young, before the explosion of religion in the community, you were considered a very, very religious person, which means, uh, like we would say today, a black cat. If you brought your own cheese to Vicks, <laughs> you remember those days? You would see very religious people. They would be standing in the alcove over there with a bag of cheese. And then the other people would look at them and say, look at these religious people. They bring their own cheese. Who do they think they are? They're looking down at us. You know, they, they think they're holier than thou. They bring their own cheese. to the... That was considered very, very religious. And then the other ones you know, would come and do whatever they wanted. Now, again, to their credit that they brought their own cheese, but you know as well as I do that... A pizza has a lot of ingredients. Cheese is only one ingredient. Now, you're assuming that all the other ingredients were kosher. How did they know that they were kosher? I have no idea. But at least they said one out of ten, at least we know, is to be kosher. And I have a secret for all those uh, people that brought their own cheese. Uh, Vic's Pizzeria used to serve about 100 pizzas every five minutes. Do you think they were able to discern between which cheese was the kosher one and which was the not kosher one? They had a big garbage can in the kitchen that said kosher cheese. And every time a guy brought a bag, they threw it in the garbage. What did they do? They, they didn't put your cheese on your pizza. Oh, there's the one. Yeah, there's your cheese. Okay, can I have it over there? So, Baruch Hashem, we came a long way. We came a long way. But don't kid yourself. Kashrut in, in restaurants is not an easy thing. I know it because we have a shul, so we have a caterer. And all day long, with a caterer type of headaches, a caterer brings you with kashrut issues. Checking the lettuce, and because everybody wants to cut corners and make money. And even if there's hashkaha, my grandfather, Joe Sapti, many years ago, he came back from one of his trips, it was a Thursday, and he went to that kosher deli in, the, uh, in Middlebrook. Uh, remember the deli there? Yeah, yeah. So my grandfather used to go there when he used to come back from his trips. And he sat there, and he's having lunch. Without my grandmother, that was his day off. And he sits down, he was a pastrami sandwich, and he's reading his paper. And uh, he's notices it. My grandfather was very, very aware of everything that was happening. He notices the guys uh, walking in, walking out. He ordered a pastrami sandwich. What's the big uh, to do? There's nobody in the place. He's the only guy in the store. There's a lot of action. So all of a sudden, my grandfather got suspicious. And he got up, he said, do me a favor. So, oh, sir, sit down, sit down. I'm a free country, sit down. I want to see what's going on over here. And he sees, opens the bag. There was a bag on the counter. He sees pastrami, askamaya. What happened? They ran out of pastrami. The waiter ran next door to, to Food Town, whatever was next door. He bought askamaya, came back here, and he served to my grandfather. My grandfather at the time called Rabbi Dweck, not this Rabbi Dweck, Rabbi Isaac Dweck, the Yeshua at the time. And he turned over the whole community. He's, this is a kosher place. And we have Ashkaha. And look what's going on. It's because Ashkaha. Look how careful, which means, so that's in a kosher place. So you think in a not kosher place, you're going to get uh, kosher? If in a kosher place, you have to shake. In a kosher place, you have to pray to God that you don't get uh, cheated. You're going to go into a not kosher place and think that you're going to play with ingredients, or oh, don't give me this, give me that, or hide your bacon, or oh, vegetable oil. Oh, you, think, you think that game doesn't work, ladies? I had a, a fellow that used to pray with us, Mr. Abe Shrem. He went to culinary school. He's a, he's a chef. The guy is a bona fide 
Chef. So I asked him a question, which all of us ask. How come when you go to a restaurant, a good restaurant, the food tastes so good? And we, we make the same food at home, it doesn't taste the same. What is it? Is it a segula in the restaurant? Is it the dishes? Is it the ambient? What makes the food in the restaurant when you make it at home, it doesn't taste the same? He says, <laughs> it's the chicken stock. But what are you talking about? He says, oh, it's of course. He says, in all the best restaurants, they have a big uh, uh, tub of chicken stock. Anything that comes out of the kitchen on the way out, automatic. I just want spaghetti marinara, nothing, but it's automatic. And you eat it, wow, it tastes so good. Honey, how come you can't make it like this? Because I don't put chicken stock in, 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 in spaghetti, that's why. And he said, it's impossible. They have all these tricks of the trade to give flavor to foods that only restaurants have. But what's, what's flavor? Flavor is meat. Flavor has a, a certain... Uh, uh, and therefore, everything he says you're getting is not going to be cool. And even... I once... Uh, uh, Saul Towel was t- told me a story once. It might live and be well. He was in one of his trips in the Far East. And at the time, he was trying to be very careful. And he had to go with a buyer somewhere. And uh, so they have a, a, a wok, like in front of them in China somewhere. And it's just vegetables. And so he, he had to go to eat with this customer. So he couldn't back out. So he told the waiter or the chef that's in front of him, listen. You just follow the chauffeurs, you have to double foil everything on this. Wow, okay, they double foil it, they make sure that nothing can touch it. Okay, beautiful. And a new knife. Okay, they open a new knife from the box. Beautiful. Okay, now take the cucumbers. Okay, in front of me. She cuts it. Okay, beautiful. Now put it on the thing. Now take the tomato. He's giving him instructions. He says, You don't do anything without my instruction. He picks up something. Well, what is that? Salt. Ah, salt. Okay, salt. Okay, put salt. I put it down. But pepper. Ten minutes, the guy's walking and doing and stir-frying and everything, and it's all just vegetables. So finally, he's finishing it, finishing, finishing it. He said, we done? We're done. He collects it. New plate. New fork and knife from the box. He puts it in the plate, and he goes like this. He serves it. As he serves it, his hand goes like this, like abracadabra. So so, so what, what was that abracadabra? What was this? Would you give a beracha on the food? What, what is this? He said, no, that's the wine. Put it in the garbage. Now, could you imagine? That's with a person telling the guy, do this, do this. And he still couldn't control it. And still, because the guy's so used to serving a hundred of these a day, so his hand instinctively just goes across. He can't, he can't control that. That's uh, Pavlov. He's like a dog. He can't control that. That's an automatic reaction. So therefore... How careful we have to be. Forget about not Those days are over looking at ingredients. When we were young, that's, how, that's what kashtut was. You know, we went, oh, magnesium stearate. It comes from pig. You can't eat that. That's the only thing we would look for when we were kids in the candy. If it didn't have magnesium, today it's different. Those days, I'm not saying it's right. That's what we, we made it up. We said, this is the item that you look for, stearate. If it has stearate in it, you can't eat it. But there's 4,000 other ingredients in it. No, that's the one we picked. But those days are over, ladies. Those days are over. Therefore, it's very, very important that the kashrut in the restaurants and in the synagogues has a very, very high standard. Now, so it costs money. And that's the people's complaint. 
people's complaint is, uh, this is so much money, we have to pay for this, uh, for this service. I don't argue. You have to pay for the guy to check the knife. You have to pay for the guy to make the shaita. You have to want for to check the lungs. Everything. It's, it costs money. We know that. We know if you go to Burger King, you get for two ninety nine, you get two hamburgers, a milkshake, and they give you a toy also, and they give you a coupon for comeback. We know that already. We know that already. My answer to that is. My answer to that is when people complain also about tuition. I know, I know that they call it a tuition crisis, <clears throat> although I don't like that terminology. Tuition might be expensive, but to call sending our children to a yeshiva that we have to pay some money, to call it a crisis, I think that would cause people to say, yeah, I'm not going to be part of this crisis and therefore I'm going to walk away. I don't like to use very, very strong terminology like that. So I told somebody that was complaining about his tuition, I said, I want to ask you a question. Don't you pay insurance? He says, yeah, but I have insurance for everything. Car insurance, fire insurance, health insurance, all day long paying insurances for things that in, in all odds will never happen. But that's why we take insurance, just in case, one in a million. I said, well, when you send your kids to yeshiva, that's assimilation insurance. You're guaranteeing almost that they will not assimilate. That's the price you pay. So it's a premium. I don't say no. But I want to ask you a question. And now if your son comes home with a Goya, now how much are you willing to pay? Now you'll pay, you'll pay everything. You'll sell your house. You'll, you'll take the fillings out of your teeth and sell them by that time. So therefore, it's better to pay the premium now that you won't have to pay the full price later. Well, I say the same thing with kashrut. Of course the products are more expensive. You're not going to change that. That's supply and demand. That's paying, paying workers. That's, that's economics 101. So you come along and say, well, I don't pay for it. You don't pay for it. You're going to pay much more then. Because if the children are not going to get the proper kashrut, then God forbid you're going to have to deal with much more serious problems. The fact that now how do you rehabilitate a blunted soul? How do you rehabilitate a soul that's been obstructed, that's much more expensive, then you're going to regret and you're going to wish, I should have spent the extra money on the, on the, on the kashrut. It's money well spent. And if you think about it anyway, it's not like we are so, uh, so uh, uh, prudent in the way we spend money. <laughs> when somebody came once, and said, it's a tuition crisis. I said, how come you don't say there's a winter vacation price crisis? That you spend the money? No, that you want to spend on. That you're happy to go spend $25,000 in Aruba for a week. That is not a crisis to you. But tuition, because you don't want to pay tuition. But you don't have a problem to go to Aruba. So whatever you don't want to pay becomes a crisis. And whatever you're happy paying, I'm happy to pay it. I figure it out. Uh, there's no meetings of how we're going to figure out the winter vacation crisis. Everybody figures it out. They, they figured it out. But tuition, oh, we got to stop that tuition. That's a terrible thing, that tuition. But same with kashrut. So when you, when you want to spend on your own luxuries, nobody questions when you want to buy a piece of jewelry, you're going to spend. When a lady wants to buy a certain clothes or shoe, they'll spend. Now when it comes to kashrut, oh, look at this turkey. It costs 14 extra dollars. Oh, calm down, calm down, calm down. You're so prudent. Let me see how you spend everything else. Yeah, everything. And that's worth it. The extra money is well worth it. Now, I'm not saying it can be exorbitant where it's unaffordable. I agree with that. But therefore, we must invest 
in keeping the kashrut, especially here in Deal. And I'm not saying it's that much better in Brooklyn. Kashrut is a problem everywhere, but at least they've been talking about it in Brooklyn for longer. So we've identified a lot of the problems earlier, so therefore we can address them. But as you involve yourself in this great experiment that you've accepted upon yourself, you're going to identify a lot of problems, and you're going to be shocked. You're going to say, my gosh, I didn't know this. I didn't know that existed. I didn't know there was a problem like that. I didn't know there was serving like that. I didn't know they relied on this leniency. You're going to start to see things that were being accepted for so many years because nobody said anything, nobody cared, everybody was happy. But once the consumer starts to complain, he says, no, 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 this is not unacceptable anymore. We want a higher level of kashrut for our children's sake. The world is so toxic as it is. Can we afford now to give our children a greater disadvantage? In conclusion. In conclusion. Is it in conclusion? Yeah. In conclusion, ladies, I will just say that whatever effect non-kosher food has on people, kosher food has the reverse effect. Yes. When you eat food that's kasher, it has a positive effect on the person. There was a great rabbi called the Baal, the Baal Shem Tov. No, the Devre Hayim Misans. Devre Hayim. Hayim Sanz. And one time, he, the Hasidim, they make a tish. Tish is like a table in Yiddish. And they invite Hasidim and they make a big seuda. And they say the Torah Friday nights. And then they serve food. There were two guys, they weren't religious, they were in the town for Shabbat. And they heard, oh, there's a Rebbe, he gives out free food. He said, okay, we'll go. <laughs> they went. They get there, and the Rebbe is giving a dirash. They don't care about the dirash, they came for the food. And then after the, the tish is over, they're giving out... Uh, uh, different uh, foods that they eat over there. Kugel. Ashkenazim have kugel. So they come to the two guys. Uh, they don't look so religious, but so what? They give them. So one guy looks and says, let me eat this stuff over here. What does it say? I can't, I can't even identify it, but he put it on the side. The other guy said, what's the difference? Free food. He ate it. He ate it. Okay, it tastes good. And they went back. Good. That was good. Yeah, you should have ate it. It was delicious. Nah, I'm not eating that food. I'm going to go home. I'm back to the hotel. We'll eat whatever we have in the hotel. They get back to the hotel. Now, all of a sudden, they start to eat whatever they have in the hotel. The guy who ate the kugel, his stomach starts to hurt. He gets nauseous. And the other guy's eating, eating. So I told you, you ate that junk. Look what you know. You can't, you know what's happening to you? You can't even eat. One day, two days, it won't go away, his stomach ache. And he's nauseous. And his friend's telling him, look what you did over here. Just one little piece of that garbage and now you, 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 you killed your stomach. He says, Truth, I don't know what I don't know what's going on with me. I never felt like this before. He comes home to his wife. He tells his wife what's going on. His wife said, you got to go to that rabbi. That rabbi must have been a holy man. Maybe he has an answer. Comes back to the rabbi. The wife says, Rabbi, my husband hasn't eaten in three days. He can't eat, hold anything down. He can't eat. He came and look at food. There's no problem he calls his uh, rabbi and said, make for him a soup, make for him food. They put it in front of him, he's eating. He said, Rabbi, he didn't eat in three days. He says, no, you don't understand what happened. He ate from the kosher kugel. It's the first time he ate kosher. Now his body started to feel the kedushah of the food of the Shabbat. It's repelled from the non-kosher food. He can't look at it. His body will not accept it. He says, the other guy that didn't eat from the kugel, he had no problem. His body was still eating the non-kosher. It didn't affect him. He said, from one piece of kugel from the Rebbe's table, already the body has been so infused with kedushah that it cannot even tolerate something. 
let him start eating kosher food and, and the sickness will go. And sure enough, that's what happened. And that's one little piece of food from the Rebbe's table. So imagine when you ladies are in the kitchen and you're being so careful and you're agonizing over every bug and, and over every law and over every... It's, it's, it's time well spent. Because when you give it to your kids, the more the lady agonized over what she put on the table in kashrut, the greater effect it's going to have on the child's kiddushah. And all of a sudden, you get a call from the teacher that your child is doing excellent in Gemara, and is doing great in Mishnah, and, is me- and you have to know that it's, a lot of it has to do with the diet. Because he's eating wholesome, kosher food without any compromise, it puts the children at a great advantage. Like Maimonides said, it's not always intellectual. A lot of it is gastronomical. A lot of the success is not on the IQ. It's on the diet. And if we go back to the old ways of bringing back these laws and traditions of the way we present and we prepare our foods, not only in our homes and our shuls and our restaurants and the community, then I think, as I said earlier, the blessing is upon you. Kashrut brings beracha. We are rectifying the sin of Adam Arishon. And if by being in contempt of Kashrut, like in the times of Haman, brought the Gezerah, then when we re-accept upon ourselves to be meticulous in Kashrut, it'll have the reverse effect. God will bring upon us Gezerot Tovot, Yeshuot V'Nechamot. To you ladies, I say, Bon Appetit. Thank you. Okay. Pulling you, man. He has juicy. No, he won't. No, he has juicy.